Welcome back Atlassians. As we start another chapter with Dr. Kyler Shumway, as we dig into healthy mindset, thoughts, mental health around friendships and our relationships in our home lives. I want to start our conversation today um, just in understanding how our relationship helps is tied to our overall mental and emotional health, whether that's for the better or for the worse. Um, Kyler, can you talk to us about how those two are intertwined? Absolutely. One of the biggest evolutionary advantages that humans developed was the ability to be connected with, with one another. In fact, there are some evolutionary theorists that say that that's the main reason why uh, humans were uh, became the, the prominent species on the planet. And, and really it's because of this, this big, big gargantuan brain that we have that is able to uh, not only do our own processing and think in our own mind, but also get into the minds of others, feel what they're feeling, um, and feel connected with them. And uh, this plays out even, even today from, from, from birth. So from uh, our very first days, weeks, months, years, uh, we are completely dependent and reliant on the caregiver. Um, all of our needs are, are outside of our scope. We can't feed ourselves or clean ourselves or uh, keep ourselves safe. And so we rely on somebody else to do that. And even as we grow and, and mature, um, our need for others is still there. We learn that it feels really good to, to belong and to, to have friends and, and loved ones around us. We learn that it hurts really bad to be rejected and it hurts to be alone. It hurts to be lonely. And that, that lonely feeling that we, we get when that happens is an evolutionary drive. It's, it's designed to, uh, to spur us back towards connection, to give us reasons for returning to, to the tribe where our people are, where we know we'll be resourced and we can be taken care of. And it's especially hard in um, 2020s uh, as we are facing a, a time, technologically speaking, where uh, connection in terms of communication and travel is more accessible and affordable than it's ever been in the history of humankind. And yet people feel lonelier than they ever have. Um, and th what's, what's curious about this is there was a recent study that showed that roughly half of, at least in the United States, adults feel uh, alone and disconnected from others. Um, and this includes people, a pretty hefty percentage of folks who do not live alone. So these are people who have relational opportunities, but still feel disconnected. And um, we can talk more about some of the reasons behind that, uh, but the, the takeaway from all of this is uh, there is this new awareness around uh, disconnection that maybe wasn't there before, where people lived in small towns and you sort of knew everybody and you went to all the things that the town had to offer. And as society has grown, it's easier for us to feel lost in a crowd. So what that's led to in terms of our own well-being and our well-being with others, where uh, in previous eras, we could really feel connected and resourced uh, with, with our small tribe. Now it's easier to get sort of lost and feel like nobody cares. 
Um, and I can speak for that uh, in my own life as somebody who is a little bit more introverted and does prefer my alone time. Uh, when the pandemic initially hit, uh, I was uh, very, very, of course, sad about the tragedies of uh, loss of human life and all of the scariness that was happening at the time, but also like, oh my gosh, I can spend all of this alone time now <laughs> and I don't have to go and be social, which was great for me. But then as things went on, uh, I realized, you know, I, I really missed going to the water cooler and seeing other people. I really missed going to barbecues and movie theaters and being around others. And so um, even still, even, even those of us like myself or, you know, Walden uh, was, was a famous introvert, even he would go to parties in town and things like that. So we all have this uh, need, this emotional need for connection. And when we don't meet that need, it, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible on our health. I love the illustration you took us through of not only why connection is so innately critical to our mental and physical health as humans, but also highlighting this almost, I think, cognitive dissonance a lot of us have, right? Where it's like, okay, if it's so important to us, it should be easy and just natural, right? But <laughs> like many of us are learning, especially in modern times, it's not that easy and it's not that natural. Um, sometimes our natural tendencies can actually lead us towards isolation without us even realizing it. So I would love to, like you offer, maybe dig into some of the reasons that we can feel alone, even if we're not living alone um, and, and maybe ways that we commonly overlook how we might unintentionally get in our own way when it comes to quality connection. Ooh, that's a really good question. The short answer to this question is that the experience of loneliness is a distressful one. So loneliness is uh, sort of by definition, um, the distress that comes from disconnection. So it, it hurts. And what's curious about this is fMRI research on social rejection and isolation has found that physical pain and the emotional pain that's caused by disconnection and, and rejection are housed in the same place in the brain. It's processed in the same exact area. Um, and that's because that, that pain is there. Just like if, you, if you're touching a hot stove, it's, it's supposed to alert you that something's wrong. Um, and because we are complex creatures and we develop complex relationships with others, sometimes that complexity can lead to unmet needs. So you may be living in the same place as someone else, but because of the nature of your relationship, uh, your needs go completely unmet by that person or just partially met by that person. Or that person may be more of a stress than a support. And so that, that definitely weighs in. Um, so in, in some ways, loneliness can act as a, uh, a bit of a downward spiral for, for people where you feel lonely and that loneliness creates that distress response. And what would normally sort of push you to, okay, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to try to make friends. If there is also uh, an undertone of despair and hopelessness that comes with that loneliness, then a person may be uh, more likely to withdraw and wait it out 
you know, I, I don't want to burden someone with myself. I don't want to reach out and risk being rejected because oof, like it hurts to be lonely, but it hurts more to be turned down um, or pushed away. And yeah. so uh, it can create a, dyna- a dynamic like that. Yeah. And I think this relates so well into our last chapter conversation about self-relationship and knowing ourselves too, right? And, and not only how we feel about ourselves, but what our schemas are like too, right? Around, okay, if I'm in distress and feeling lonely and I have a need for connection, but um, I'm scared that I'm going to look weak or needy if I ask for anything, or I should be more self-reliant or capable. I shouldn't need to, like you said, burden someone else that it just creates so much complexity um, in how we're able to not only speak up for our needs, but maybe even identify them in the first place. So true. That's so true. Um, I can also speak for myself. Uh, I identify as a cis man, um, grew up socialized as a boy, as a man. And um, one thing that is typically uh, either sort of like looked down on or um, sort of like joked about or, or shamed is the idea that men want uh, sort of like physical affection that isn't purely sexual, um, like a hug or, or like somebody to come put their arm around me or something like that. Um, and I remember when, when I first realized that I had this belief inside that like I couldn't ask for that from uh, from even from my wife, from my friends. Um, and as soon as I became aware of this, sort of like as as many of the the schemas that hold us back are, it's sort of like this this myth that I've always told myself. As soon as I realized that this is a myth that could be challenged, um, I was able to to ask for it more. Like with my friends, we usually greet each other with hugs and say goodbye with hugs. And that for me, as somebody who, had this unmet need for a long time, being able to meet that need was, was great in my life. Yeah. Um, this reminds me, this might be a, a complete tangent and anecdote that maybe we headed <laughs> out of this conversation. <laughs> it's always such a great tool that I love talking about. And I'm so glad you brought it up too, right? It's just like the power of physical touch in relationship. Cause sometimes okay. I think that when we're like stuck or feeling weird that we have to talk it out, but a lot of times we might be so wonky and off that like, we're not going to be able to come up with words or connect over words to where coming together in safe feeling physical touch can really help kind of soothe our nervous system and bring down the distress response so that we can connect again. And I actually learned this from, um, Peter Craig, who you probably know, um, it is the art of belly hugging. Uh, (laughs) He taught me this uh, as I was kind of doing my own work, um, but especially as a ritual in starting and ending the work days, right? With me and my husband, instead of like passing a ships in the night or immediately coming home with the stress of the day or whatnot, instead we just have a routine to hug and make sure our bellies touch, mm. kind of like activate just the the natural biology, right? Of, of serotonin being produced and feeling safe. Um, but also having a nice routine of connection that's always there to make sure that at the beginning of the day, we start with it. And the end of the day, instead of 
coming home and bringing all of work and allowing that work and stress to keep us disconnected that we have a really simple routine that doesn't take any brain power to reconnect. Um, so I love that you bring that up and, and share that for what it's worth too. That's so beautiful. Um, all of my hugs are belly hugs because I can't say no to cheese balls, but um, yeah, I mean, there was, there's, there was a study where they had uh, partners um, sitting in a room together and one partner had to put their hand in a bucket of ice and hold it there. So it's like this pain experiment. And um, in one condition, they had them sort of like uh, by themselves. And then in another condition, they had their partner like hold their hand. Um, and what they found is the pain response of the brain was mitigated um, or, or lessened by the presence mm -hmm. of, of a loved one giving you physical contact. So even if it's a stranger, um, there's some degree of pain reduction, which is really quite something. Wow. Yeah. Science, biology. So cool. <laughs> uh, so when it comes to our relationships and being able to reflect on them and understand if we have healthy, supportive relationships or not, are there any tangible characteristics you would say that we should either prioritize or kind of reflect and self-check on um, when it comes to all of our relationships? So this really depends on how we define quality, because when we say quality, most people think that that means like really awesome or really great, but quality just means meets uh, my expectations. That's it. So quality relationship that meets my expectations. And so based on that, we want to think about the quality of relationship doing those things. And if it doesn't, then, then again, just like with loneliness or we'll, we'll suffer. And we have to think about the, uh, the traits that are the, or the, the needs rather that are realistic and the ones that are unrealistic. So realistically in a quality relationship, there are some things that should be expected. Um, first of all, safety and trust. If there's a lack of safety for whatever reason, even whether or not that's like physical safety, whether that's if I share my stuff with you, are you going to go tell everybody or um, things like that? So being able to be vulnerable and trust that people will hold that. That's one really key ingredient. Another one is reciprocity, that we are meeting my needs for reciprocity and I'm, I'm meeting yours, that the give and take it doesn't have to be equal. It just means both people feel that it's it's meeting those needs. Um, engagement, so time spent together, time interacting with one another, again, sharing those memories, creating those experiences uh, together. What's curious about that one is some quality relationships need very, very little engagement. You might have a friend, for example, I have one in Oregon that I text maybe once or twice a year, and it's like no time has passed. Friendship is still very much there and intact, and we're making the same inside jokes. So uh, again, it's, it's, it's about whether or not it's meeting the need. And then the last realistic quality of, of a quality relationship is communication. Uh, there should be an expectation around communicating based on what my needs are and what, what your needs are. And as long as a relationship has those components, uh, it can work really, really well for everyone involved. But people tend to also throw in unrealistic expectations for their relationships. Um, one example of this is that you will meet my needs always in every way. <laughs> um, this is typically the case in romantic relationships, but it can also happen in friendships where if a friend uh, flakes on a hangout or they 
um, don't do a thing that you ask them to do, then it can feel like, oh no, the relationship is in jeopardy and it's falling apart and you know we're breaking up. So uh, it's because of that unrealistic expectation that, that makes it less than quality. Um, another unrealistic expectation is that uh, we'll never make mistakes or never hurt each other. So humans are humans. If we were to put Fred Rogers and Bob Ross into a room together, uh, long enough, they're eventually gonna have a fight. Uh, or they're going to hurt each other's feelings. Like these two saints of human humans uh, who, who once lived um, could, you know, eventually fall into conflict. So with that unrealistic expectation, it's easy to feel like the relationship's failing. And then the last one is the expectation that I am going to get more of out of this than I'm willing to give. So if I'm not willing to be flexible and meet your needs, then the relationship is, is going to fall apart. So those are some of the most important qualities of, of a good relationship. And uh, in order to contain the re realistic needs of both parties, um, that's what makes it the most satisfying. But there are some things that you can do to move it beyond just meets my needs and, and go towards what most people, when they say quality and, and they mean good or awesome. They, they involve these things, things like gratitude, expressions of gratitude in the relationship, saying thank you to your friend, being glad for the stuff that they give you or, or your partner. Um, another one is affection and expressions of love is so important, um, especially in our relationships where um, maybe it, it feels like you're not allowed to do that. Like uh, I remember the first time I told one of my guy friends that I loved him, which as a straight cis man who was raised in a pretty rigid uh, uh, societal community where like uh, there's maybe some homophobia or something like that. Uh, saying I love you to a man friend uh, could be misinterpreted and therefore it was forbidden. Uh, when I was able to have the freedom to do that, uh, it deepened our relationship. And I, I realized that love can mean lots of different things. Um, so. Other things, quality time together, forgiveness for when there's hurt, um, and then also boundaries in the relationship. Um, when the relationship can set norms and expectations around those needs, then nobody has to feel like they're messing up. What a beautiful kind of list and guide to be able to use, but as well as also some beautiful real life examples too. Um, as we kind of reach our last point of our conversation today, I'd love to close with maybe some tips or encouragement on how we can approach some of the tougher conversations in our relationships, um, such as either speaking to unmet needs, speaking to conflict, speaking to tension in our relationships, um, what tips would you offer our Atlassians when they're going through the, the times when we feel hurt or like our needs are unmet in relationship? How do we start the conversation in a way that um, can set us up for, for healthier communication? This is a great question. So we all tend to get so hung up on right and wrong um, and sort of like, what is the reality of what went down in any conflict? And the truth is that no single person is able to fully conceptualize and understand like everything that is happening all the time. You can't have full awareness and knowledge of the universe and, and its happenings. And uh, because of this, it's less about 
two people trying to discern the truth and more about uh, the, the, a great example of this comes from the blind men and the elephant. So this is a painting, but it's actually also a metaphor. Just imagine a group of four or five uh, blindfolded men uh, uh, or people who are gathered around this large elephant and they're all trying to figure out what it is and they've never been exposed to an elephant before. One of them might touch the leg and be like, oh, this is clearly a tree. And then one of them might grab the trunk and be like, this is a snake. Um, and then the other one might touch the tail and say, it's a paintbrush or something like that. And all of them, their own experience is valid. They are definitely, the, the, the leg person is definitely touching something that feels like a tree. That is their truth. Um, and they're all wrong <laughs> because it's an elephant. It's not any of those things. Um, and, and so the more that we can realize in any conflict that what we are experiencing is just part of the elephant um, and uh, like any assumption that we have the full truth makes, makes things feel a lot worse in, in uh, any sort of disagreement. So if I think that you're always ignoring me, um, that's a good example of like, my truth is I feel ignored, um, but that does not mean that you are ignoring me because the truth could be uh, you're distracted or maybe you're dissociating or maybe uh, uh, you, you uh, are having a hard time hearing me when I'm talking to you or something like that. So there, there are other explanations that help define the elephant a little bit more. So I'm highlighting this elephant metaphor to give you a concept that you can use when you're entering conflict, because the, the, the beginning of a conflict needs to come with an acknowledgement of the elephant in the room. <laughs> so you have to be willing to say, look, I want to talk about, I know that this is something that's sort of co-created here. Um, there's, there's a situation that's sort of going on between both of us. And I want to talk about some of my experiences. I really want to understand your experiences so that we can make sense of this elephant together. And you can really break this down into three parts. So you can talk about uh, my stuff. What's my stuff? What can I own? What's my experience, my perceptions? What's your stuff, uh, so your experiences, the things that you're doing to contribute? And then what's our stuff, the stuff that we do together that sort of creates this, this elephant of a problem. And uh, when you can enter into a dialogue like that, then it becomes less about uh, whose stuff is the problem and more about how can we make a game plan so that when we're working through our stuff together, uh, it can be more effective. We can uh, both have our own experience and, and not feel invalidated or gaslit by the other person. I can fully acknowledge that you feel that you're listening to me when I feel ignored. Um, and I can still feel ignored because what's happening is there's an elephant in between us and we're, we're working on that together. So there are some, some strategies that can be used in the conversation itself. All of these come from what's called nonviolent communication, uh, which is a communication strategy that was developed by a, an American psychologist um, a number of years ago. I can sort of break those down if that's helpful. I also want to be respectful of our time, Gloria. Yeah, let's reference those. Um, I'll maybe grab that link from you or, or anything like that, and we can reference those um, along yeah. with you. How does that sound? That sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Kyler, for spending time going deep, not only in the education, but your own stories and experiences and how we can apply those to our everyday life. 
Um, I love that you talked us through not only just the basics of relationship health and how that impacts us, but also things that we overlook in our understanding and our approach of relationship and um, what we can do to deepen and even repair our relationships, right? I love that on the unrealistic list, one of the last things you had shared was that we will never hurt each other, right? And that, yeah, even Fred Rogers and Bob Ross, after enough time, are going to. And um, I love that you ended us on a note of how we can get past that point, because I think sometimes when we're faced with hurting each other, we don't know what to do. And so to have an initial toolbox and a frame um, of mind to seek to understand each other um, will really help us be able to continue to deepen and foster um, quality relationships for ourselves. So thank you so much, Kyler. Our Atlassians, I'm sure are going to learn and have so much to think about from our conversation. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and want to wish everybody well with uh, their self-relationship, with figuring out friendships. Remember that everybody deserves a space to belong, even if uh, it's hard to believe it sometimes. So uh, yeah, take care. Bye.